I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. We have a lot to cover this morning. I'm going to warn you that it's going to be more of an overview than anything. Uh, Judges chapter 10, we're going to be making our way through chapters 10 and 11 and even a little bit into chapter 12. Judges 10 verse 1 through Judges 12 verse 7. And what we'll do is we'll read the passage as we move our way through it. I want to suggest to you at the outset that history is filled with the stories of unlikely heroes. And boy, do we love those stories, don't we? The person who rises up onto the scene and does some great or heroic deed that no one would have ever expected uh, to be capable of such things. Take even, for instance, the history of our nation as we gather here on the 4th of July, the the independence that we enjoy as a nation won in large part by the successes of unlikely heroes. Take Nathaniel Green, for instance. Uh, one historian writes that he was the unlikeliest of military heroes. He was born a Quaker. He was raised a pacifist. He had asthma. He walked with a pronounced limp and was even rejected uh, membership in the Kentish Guard militia that he himself helped to form in 1774. He taught himself how to be a soldier by reading books, by being studious, and was appointed to be the youngest brigadier general in the Continental Army in 1775, only to top that by being promoted to major general in 1776 by George Washington. So powerful and successful was Nathaniel Green that it is believed that Washington would have appointed him to be commander-in-chief if anything would have happened to him. What an unlikely hero. Our hearts are drawn to these stories because I think down uh, deep we all kind of identify with the underdog. And if the stories of unlikely heroes sort of captures your heart and your imagination, well, this morning is going to be a treat for you. Because as we make our way through Judges 10, 11, and a little bit into chapter 12, we have the stories of three of the most unlikely saviors for Israel. All three of these men that we're going to read about this morning, Tola, Jair, and Jephthah, are unlikely deliverers. They're unlikely saviors. And if there's anything that this passage teaches us, it's just this, that the Lord raises up unlikely deliverers. He's done this throughout the history of the world, whether it's Moses, the man who is a murderer and rejected by his people, whether it's the judges here in chapters 10 and 11, or whether it's the most unlikely of saviors of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is despised and rejected by men, according to Isaiah 53 and verse 3. If you were taking notes uh, this morning, I want to entitle this sermon, Tola, Jair, and the Savior Everyone Hated. Tola, Jair, and the Savior everyone hated. The Lord raises up unlikely deliverers. Let's look at Tola. That's point number one, Tola, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. You look there at the text, we read, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years then he died and was buried at Shamir. What a resume. We have almost nothing 
here about Tola. Um, I looked up the meaning of his name. Apparently means worm. So he's got that going for him. He's a worm. Uh, his grandfather was a real dodo. You know, I mean, I don't know who's naming these people. You met his father. He said, you said, what's, the, what's your name? He said, Pua. And you said, why are you spitting at me? I mean, these people are named brilliantly. Tola, Pua, and Dodo. All we have about this man is his name. Uh, again, it means worm. We have his family pedigree. He's the son of Pua, son of Dodo, and a man of Issachar. We have his location. He's there in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And we have his tenure. He judged for 23 years. And then finally, his burial. He died and was buried at Shamir. There's no heroics. There are no battles. There's no intrigue, no conspiracy, no nothing. It's about as bland as you can get. Doesn't bland sound good after Abimelech? Sounds great, doesn't it? Here's a man who is an unlikely hero because of his obscurity and his plainness. Barry Webb, one of the commentators, writes, Tola is an obscure man from an obscure place and an obscure family. He's obscure, but he's God's man. And he judges and he saves Israel after the disaster that is Abimelech. He's completely unknown. There will be many in heaven, many faithful pastors who labored for years and years and years in relative obscurity. Many a church member who prayed faithfully and sought unity and loved the Lord and His Word, who no one will ever know, to live in obscurity and lack of any sort of fanfare, no real large social media following, and yet they are God's people. Here is Tola. He's unlikely because he's so unknown. He's obscure. But secondly, we have Jair, verses 3 and 5. And as you can probably tell, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on Jephthah. But here we have Jair in verses 3 to 5. You see that in the text, after him, that is, after Tola arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. Same deal. The barest of facts. Here is his family pedigree, the Gileadite, his tenure, 22 years, his burial, buried in Kamon. We have his prosperity. There are 90 very significant details here that differentiate Jair from Tola. Those are his 30 sons, their 30 donkeys, and their 30 cities. Here is a man who is an unlikely deliverer because he seems to be more interested in accumulating wealth and making a name for himself than he does anything else. It's hard to beat Jair's son. You only get the keys to a Lexus in a city named after you on your birth. Here's a man who lives in complete, complete opulescence. If Tola is unlikely because he's obscure, Jair is unlikely because he is opulent. But he's God's man. You see a theme beginning to form in our passage as we make our way into maybe the most confusing of all of the judges in this book, and that is Jephthah, the Savior that everyone hated. There is a theme that unites these three men, and it is the theme of being unlikely heroes. Now, we're going to make our way through Jephthah's story bit by bit, and I want you to keep in mind that no one, no one from the very get-go would have ever selected Jephthah to be the deliverer. And by the time his story is over, many of us are going to be confused about why he's even in the Bible at all. 
and yet he's God's man. Jephthah. Now let's break his story into scenes. This is the first scene of the Jephthah saga, and I'm going to call it idolatry and repentance. Idolatry and repentance. Join me in chapter 10, verse 6, and we're going to read all the way to verse 16. God's word says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. What's at stake in this scene is, has Israel learned his lesson? Over and over and over again throughout this book, we see this pattern of sin and despair and being sold into slavery and crying out for deliverance. Let's not miss the fact that at this point in our chapter, this is the third time that we're in this position of the Israelites needing to be saved. Have they learned their lesson? Well, the, the text answers clearly that they haven't. They just look at the descriptions of Israel's behavior. They did what was evil. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They forsook or they left the Lord, and they did not serve Him. And the way that the writer stacks up all the different gods that they worship seems to indicate that the only thing that they won't worship, the only person they won't worship, is the only person who's worthy of worship. They're completely undone, completely entangled in their own idolatry. And so right on cue, we read that the Lord's anger is kindled, that they're crushed and oppressed and distressed under the oppression of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And again, right on cue, they cry out, Lord, save us. But along the same lines as we saw last week, we ought not to presume upon the grace of God. Let's not become too familiar because here the Lord surprises us yet again by saying the divine equivalent of don't come crying to me. Do you see that in the text? How many times have I saved you? I saved you from the Egyptians. I saved you from all the ites. I saved you over and over and over again. Verse 13 Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, 
I will save you no more. Friends, the saving is meant to lead to serving. Being saved from sin and oppression is meant to lead us to a joyful submission to the lordship of the God who saves us. Kelly and I have gotten recently sort of hooked on the show Hoarders, which I don't think needs any explanation. We were watching, we were watching an episode with this woman. It just broke my heart to watch this woman. She had been the second wife of a man whose previous wife had been uh, who had died, and she'd hoarded the house entirely, and there was some suspicion about whether the children or even her husband were going to want her in the house. So throughout the entire episode, she was just sort of cantankerous and angry and, and fussy. She just gave everybody a hard time. But then there was a moment at the end of the episode where the children said, you know, we want you here. We love you. We want you to live with our dad. And her husband said, of course I want you here. Of course I love you. And you know what happened to her the moment she heard that? Things couldn't go into the, the, the trash pile quick enough. She smiled for the first time. She was willing to work with the people for the first time because she had received grace that had come home. Israel, they haven't learned their lesson. At least not yet. Grace hasn't come home, and so every time the Lord saves, rather than serving him, they commit adultery spiritually. Cry to me no more. You go cry to your other lovers. See what they can do for you. You've chosen other gods. See if they'll deliver you. But what's so surprising again, maybe as we stack surprise upon surprise, is the way that Israel responds to the no that they've received. Verse 15 we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us, and they put away the foreign gods from them. They confess their sin. They confess that whatever God does is right, even if it's justice. They pray once again, but please deliver us, and they put away their idols. That's repentance. Not merely lip service, but actually putting away the sin that imprisons us. And like a father who sees his child suffering, one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Judges, the Lord, as he looks upon his suffering, miserable, repentant people, becomes impatient. Isn't that a beautiful word? Impatient over the misery of Israel. We have sort of short-fused in relationship to their misery. He can't take watching his people suffer. This is a God of incredible, incredible grace idolatry and repentance. But next we have searching for a leader. Now, keep in mind that this, this whole sort of story to this point of Israel rejecting the Lord only to come back to Him when they're in, in time of need, it, it's, it's sort of meant to help us understand Jephthah. Because what you're going to see is that Jephthah parallels the Lord almost perfectly. What's at stake in verses 17 of chapter 10 through 11 11 is the question, who is going to fight against the Ammonites? Join me. Chapter 10, verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. 
And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. You can see the dark shadow of this massive Ammonite army coming into the land of Gilead. Gilead is on the east uh, side of the Jordan. It's where the tribes who didn't cross over with the others, well, they crossed over, didn't have land on the other side of the Jordan, uh, lived. Here are the Ammonites. They move into Gilead. They're setting up shop. They're squatters. And they're ready to fight. And so the question becomes, who in the world is going to lead us against this massive army? Will the Lord deliver us? And we're given this little flashback about a man named Jephthah, who has what we'll call a very big butt. Jephthah's a mighty warrior. He's the perfect candidate if you stop the sentence there, but he's got some family issues, doesn't he? He's the son of a prostitute. It reads a lot like 2 Kings 5 when we read about Naaman, a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. It's a big, fat, substantial butt. He's a mighty warrior, but his mother is a prostitute. Gilead was his father. Gilead had wives and, uh, who also bore him sons, or had a wife that also bore him sons. And when the wife's sons grow up, they drive Jephthah out, saying to him in verse 3, You shall never have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. I'm sorry, verse 2. There's one way to take care of a tricky inheritance dispute ahead of time, if you've ever had to deal with sort of settling an estate of a loved one after they've died. One of the easiest ways to settle things uh, without much conflict is to just eliminate the parties involved. Get out of here. You're the son of a prostitute. You're not really part of the family. You know how damaging that kind of, kind of thought is? My father had a brother and a sister, both of them by a different mother. Same father, different mother. My father would never allow the term half-brother or half-sister to be used. Never. Because of what it implied. You don't really belong. You're not really one of us. Here, Jephthah is driven out by his brothers. You'll never have an inheritance. You do not belong. And so he leaves to the land called Tob and gathers a posse of worthless fellows around him. Now we come back after this flashback in verse 4, and again we've got this dark cloud, the shadow of the Ammonites looming over Israel, and they say, oh, do you remember Jephthah? Wasn't he a mighty warrior? Well, yeah, but his, his mom was a prostitute. Well, forget that for a second. Isn't he a mighty warrior? Couldn't we use him right about now? 
And so they go and they pursue Jephthah and they ask him to be their head. It's quite a bit more than an inheritance, isn't it? Would you like to have the first seat? Would you like to be the chieftain of the Gileadites? Would you like to lead us into battle? You see this in verse 7 in Jephthah's reply. This parallel between Jephthah and the Lord that he is about to serve. Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Did you not hate me? I saw an interview uh, this past week that I couldn't tell if it was real, if it was a joke, if it was sarcastic, if it was sad. It was uh, NBA player Giannis Antetokounmpo and he says in the interview, I'm a loner, look at me. And the camera looks around to the chairs next to him. And he says, there's nobody around me. Nobody likes me, man. It is what it is. And you see that and you think to yourself, man, you can have absolutely everything and, and have absolutely nothing at the same time. Your heart breaks for someone who can say, nobody likes me. Our hearts break for Jephthah. Did you not hate me? Kick me out of my home? When it had nothing to do with me? Why are you coming to me now? But when was let that sort of human interest of someone being despised and rejected and kicked out of his own family, let that inform the way that we understand sin. Is that not exactly what Israel has been doing to the God of the Bible? Hating him, forsaking him, having nothing to do with him, only coming to him when they need something? Jephthah is a, is a glimpse of, on the human plane, what it's like when we abandon the Lord and sin against Him and commit idolatry. There's a deliberate parallel. See, if Tola is unlikely because of his obscurity, if Jair is unlikely because of his op, uh, opulence, this man, Jephthah, is unlikely because he's been ostracized by everyone. And yet... He covenants to be their Savior. He says before them all, if in fact I come to you and the Lord delivers the people into my hands, I will be your head. Let's review the contract. Let's make sure everybody's got the terms. Lord, do you hear me? You see that at the very end of the text in verse 11? Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Sort of a, there's sort of a tragic seed being planted for Jephthah. The man who everyone hated now wants more than anything to be the man that everyone looks up to. Let's just be clear. I'm going to be, I'm going to be in charge, right? Lord, did you hear me? You give them into my hands. I'm going to be in charge. I'll be the head. Well, as the people covenant with Jephthah to save them, Jephthah begins his ministry with what I call an Ammonite Bible study. Here's the, the, the thing that's at stake here. Can conflict be avoided? Look at verse 12. Jephthah, the one that everyone hated, is now the leader of the Gileadites, willing to engage the Ammonites in battle. Verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. 
Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sa'an, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, son of, or king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. It seems to me that one of the things that you might want in a general or a commander is someone with a sense of history, is it not? I mean, I'm assuming, I've never served in the military, but I would assume that generals need to be knowledgeable about national and international history, about the history of battles. They have to have some sense of what's gone before them. And Jephthah fits that bill perfectly. Here is the Ammonites getting ready to invade Israel. Now understand this. The Ammonites are serving their own interests. God had sent them as discipline against his people, but it's not as though the king of the Ammonites woke up one day and said, you know, God wants me to invade his people as an instrument of his justice. That's not how sovereignty works. No, the king of the Ammonites woke up and said, that's a nice chunk of real estate. I kind of like that for myself. In fact, I'm going to claim that they took it from me so that I can take it back from them. And without belaboring the point, what Jephthah does here is he corrects the king of Ammon by, well, just giving him basic Bible facts. I'll give you some passages you might want to write down for yourself to understand what he's saying. In verses 12 to 17, he talks about Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21, where Israel is forbidden passage through Edom. In verses 18 to 24, he talks about Numbers 21, 21 to 30, where Israel fought against Sihon and the Amorites, not the Ammonites, because Sihon fought against them. And so Israel defeated the king of the Amorites and took their land. Numbers 21, 24 says, Israel defeated him, that's Sihon, with the edge of the sword and, the, uh, and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And then in verse 25, he brings to bear the history of Balak, the king of Moab, who saw the power of Israel and realized he just didn't want any. Tried to have them cursed. It didn't work. It's the story of Balaam and the donkey. Balak just goes home at the end of the story. 
Jephthah's historical sort of um, overview is we never fought against Edom. We fought against Sihon, and we licked, licked up the dust with him, and, and Balak didn't even want any. Are you better than him? You sure you want to do this, Ammon? You sure you can handle this? Why don't you just take what your God, your false God, gives you and quit worrying about what our God has given us? But sort of the, the best sort of statement in all of this overview by Jephthah is the, the climax that comes there in verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. If you have ever had, if you have ever had someone lie about you, someone create a false narrative about you, sort of impugn your motives, or you know, spin sort of deceptive webs around you, turning people against you, there is this temptation to defend yourself, isn't there? And here Jephthah says, you know what? The Lord will judge. I don't have to. I don't have to do the song and dance. I haven't done anything wrong. The Lord will decide between the two of us, and the king of Ammon just won't have it. Doesn't listen to the words of Jephthah that he sends to him, verse 28. Now here, we're led into the most infamous passage, I think, in the book of Judges, and certainly the most infamous episode in Jephthah's life. If you are Sensitive to um, sensitive to sort of difficult passages. Now's the time to sort of compose yourself because this is a doozy. In verse 29, after this Ammonite Bible study, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever, I just want to note, um, this should probably be translated whoever. Whoever, you can see the footnote there in the ESV, comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it or him up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions." So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, and she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. What's at stake here? He's not really going to do it, is he? 
That's what's at stake here. He's not really going to do it, is he? This is such an insanely troubling text. There are some who would say, um, and maybe you think, right, and what's he going to say about this? What's Pastor Mike going to say about this? What is there to say about it? It's horrific. It's stupid. It's sin. There are some who would attempt to say that Gideon, or I'm sorry, Jephthah, doesn't actually sacrifice his daughter. Let me, let me just give you a hint. When somebody tells you because of their great learning they can make a passage say the exact opposite of what it says, just walk away. They're playing games. Martin Luther is the one that I typically go to if I need a hard dose of reality. What's Martin Luther say about this passage? Quote, one would like to think that he did not sacrifice her, but the text clearly says that he did. He's not going to really do it, is he? He did it. He did it. There's a man so insanely driven by this desire to be the head of his people. Remember, Lord, if you give them into my hands, I'm going to be the head. Lord, please give them into my hands. I'll give you anything you want if I can have this one thing. And after the defeat of the Ammonites, out walks his young, beautiful, sweet daughter with tambourines and dances just like Miriam came with her friends to dance and celebrate when the Lord had delivered his people from Egypt. Gideon tries to pawn the blame off on her. You have brought me very low. That's an interesting take, Jephthah. No, it was absolute foolishness should not have ever been done. Don't get bogged down by the, this idea that he makes a vow and says he's going to do something, so he absolutely has to, to keep the vow. No, he should never keep the Better to break the vow than to keep the vow and commit murder. What this is intended to show us, friends, is the downward spiral of sin and the desperate need for a true Savior. You and I are supposed to see our stupidity, our idolatry, our insane drive to have that one thing that we think will give us meaning and purpose in life, the one thing that we would give anything in order to achieve. There's a man who does the absolute worst thing I think I've ever encountered in the Scriptures. And he's God's man. This is his vow and victory. Finally, we have the Ephraimite execution. We have this in chapter 12, 1 to 7, which brings our uh, Jephthah saga to a close. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? 
And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And whenever uh, any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? And he said, No. They said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. What is it with the Ephraimites? Chapter 8, after Gideon defeats the enemies, Ephraim comes out, why didn't you call us to fight? They're like kids on a playground who just want to jump into any fistfight that comes their way. All they want to do is get into a scuffle. Here they're at, at conflict with Jephthah for not being called. And as the disintegration in Israel continues, I want you to notice that the saga of Jephthah ends with civil war. The general against the Ammonites is now turned against Israel. There is this, if it weren't so serious, it would be comical, way to distinguish between the Ephraimites and the Gileadites. There in verse 6, say Shibboleth, and he said Sibboleth. I was sat in my office and just Shibboleth. Sibboleth, Shibboleth, Sibboleth. I mean, that's kind of funny, really. It's like, you know, Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, we are most accustomed to the idea. We detect a New Englander when he tells us he popped a ka, a Southerner, how he handles his long I vowels as an five. You know, there's an A-H in place of an I. And how about this, friends? A Western Pennsylvanian, Dale Ralph Davis is one of us, when he calls a narrow flowing stream a crick instead of a creek. So if this was a creek-crick thing, you'd all be doomed, you Ephraimites. Um, But there's this civil war that spirals out of control, begins here with Jephthah and the Ephraimites. Here is just an insanely unlikely deliverer. Hated by everyone, sacrifices his daughter, slaughters his own people. He's God's man. He's God's man. Many of us are troubled by the fact, I've had people ask me, what are you, you going to say about Hebrews 11? Jephthah's in Hebrews 11. He's one of the heroes of the faith. Well, would you expect him to be sinless? I mean, does your theology matter? Did you expect him to be sinless? How many sinless people have there ever been? One. His name's Jesus, so don't be shocked by his sin. If you had to be sinless to get into Hebrews 11, there'd be no one in Hebrews 11. Amen? He's not in Hebrews 11 because he's pointing to himself. That's where we get Hebrews 11 wrong. Hebrews 11 is not about, look at how great these heroes of the faith are. Hebrews 11 is, look at how all of these people point to Jesus. Hebrews 11, surprise, surprise, I went to seminary for this, is followed by Hebrews 12. And uh, in, in Hebrews 12, we read what? Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus. Tola, if he would have made Hebrews 11, would be doing this. Have you ever heard of a town called Nazareth? It's kind of a dumpy, obscure hick town. Jesus is like me, but better. Jair would be pointing to Jesus and saying, you know, I've got a lot of stuff. So does my family. But there's one, there's one who had everything. 
who became poor so that you might become rich. And Jephthah, because he is in Hebrews 11, he's pointing and he's saying, listen, there's one who's hated just like me. He was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, 3. There is not a human being who's ever been born to whom Jesus couldn't say, did you not hate me? Didn't you hate me? None of us are born Christian. We are born by nature as enemies of God and therefore enemies of His Savior. Did you not hate me? He was despised and rejected by men. But isn't it amazing that like Jephthah, though it would be right to respond to the hate with opposition, he responds to our hatred with grace. He doesn't say, did you not hate me? He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Given my life for you. Paid for your sin, rose again. I am the judge and the Savior that you need, the unlikeliest of them all, and yet the most important of them all. Will you trust me? And there's something here in this story of Jephthah for you and for me because I think, honestly, friends, we've, we've sort of gotten this wrong because we think that this is a new development. Jesus taught his disciples in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Who is the Savior that everyone hated? Jesus. And who are the people who are most hated in this life? The people that bear his name. This is why I say all the time that to trust in Jesus is not a light or easy thing. It's signing up to be said, I, or to say, I am willing to be hated for the name of Jesus. I am willing to be despised for the name of Jesus. I am willing to obey Jesus as Lord, no matter the social or political cost. I'm willing to say what the Bible says, no matter what the cost. I'm willing to be hated by my friends and my family. I'm willing to pay whatever the price is for the sake of Jesus. Being a Christian means that you are given absolutely everything, and yet it will simultaneously cost you everything. Isn't that crazy? It's free, but it costs you everything. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me. You really going to follow Jesus in 2021 and say what the Scriptures say with kindness and love and grace and patience about human sexuality? We're going to be in John 15, 18 in about five seconds. Count the cost. He was hated. He has loved you. To receive that love is to sign up to be hated by the world. But think, understand this. You, to become a Christian is to receive the greatest love that heaven and earth could ever give. And it is that love that sustains you and me in the course of our lives when we receive the, the hatred and the venom of the world. Is the love of Jesus worth more than the hatred of the world? 
Oh, praise, praise God is right, brother. Sustains us in our darkest moments, our deepest doubts, our most serious frustrations, the greatest opposition. Oh, what a wonderful and beautiful, unlikely Savior. Will you trust in Him? I'm not asking you to walk an aisle. I'm asking you to pick up a cross. Can you carry it? Will you carry it? I'd love to talk to you about that more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, the heroes in the book of Judges walk with a limp. Fingers pointed to Jesus. The one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The Savior who returns love for hatred to those who turn from their sin and repentant faith and say, this is exactly why I'm calling out to you, Lord, in my distress. I'm undone. Please save me and be head and Lord and ruler over me. Lord Jesus, as we make our way into communion, we understand that you were despised and rejected by men. That you were crushed and afflicted for our sin. That the world hated you. And because it hated you, it hates us. So Lord, as we partake of communion, we pray that you would help us to partake as brothers and sisters hated by the world but loved by you. We pray for any who don't know you, that you would help us to value the love of Jesus as far abundantly more worth uh, our lives than the hatred of this world. Far outweighs. So Lord, draw us to yourself. We pray all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen.